0: Coming up on our hella confusing 20s.
1: And then I graduated, did a showcase, got an agent, and now I'm in LA just trying to do the acting dream and figure all that out. So I'm, I'm doing okay, man, I'm living the dream. You know,
0: losing my mind like everybody else. I had this idea that like, I'm gonna go there, The one liner will lead to more three liners, which will lead to small parts, which will lead to lead roles. Mm-hmm. Just seeing the, I guess the chaos and the randomness of how it actually works for everybody (laughs) uh, was very eye-opening. And there is a comfort that I have with
1: Catholicism, with Christianity, but there's also a a demon in it. There's something by the insidious way people use it that still make it
0: feel sullied. And now, the episode. So I think this will end up being an episode of our hella confusing 20s. Which is my podcast that I released released. That I release every so often. I don't do it regularly because like I'm not really trying to like build up listeners like that and Mm -hmm. be a a podcaster. But it's it's nice to it's almost like a journal sometimes. Yeah. Or it's nice to like talk with people around our age group Mm -hmm. in showbiz, see how things are going. How old are you? I turned twenty nine in May.
1: Oh, I just turned twenty nine. I'm ahead of you.
0: You're ahead of me, dude. So I'm fucking 28 and a half. Uh-huh. Eric just turned 29. And Eric, you know, what I what I really, my burning, what I want to know. Mm. How the hell are you, dude? How the hell are you doing? It's been a while since we've chatted.
1: <laughs> I'm doing okay. It's, uh, um, no, 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 no. I graduated from LMU two years ago as a
0: late college person. So I was, that. That stands for Labia Mungus University, is that correct? Correct. A lot of ladies, really big, so that's why they were Munguses. Okay.
1: Uh, yeah, and so it. I Labia felt like mungus such a University. small old guy there, because
0: I'm just average height. <laughs> small old guy. Yeah.
1: And then uh, I did LMEU. <laughs> why an small L-MU. and why old? Huh?
0: Why small and why old? Well, why were those if the, the ladies are
1: Munguses, right, I'm not really a Mungus yeah. guy. I'm just like a normal sized 5'9 guy. Uh, and then, got it. I was late going into LMU, so I was like 27 when I went to LMU and transferred in. And then I graduated, did yeah. a showcase, got an agent, and now I'm in LA just trying to do the acting dream and figure all that out. So I'm, I'm doing okay, man. I'm living the dream. You know, losing my mind like everybody else.
0: Yeah, <laughs> just totally lost in the sauce, mm-hmm. as it were. <laughs> uh, yeah, for context, Eric and I met up in Los Altos Hills in the Bay Area. We uh, crossed paths at a little institute called Foothill Community College in the the theater conservatory. They had like a two-year program that sadly is no longer a thing. You knew about that though, right? Yeah, because when I came in,
1: when I came into it, it wasn't a thing. So it was just like they let anybody in there, which is, you know, (laughs) why they let me in. It already wasn't.
0: Huh? I thought that, I, I thought that it wasn't a thing like shortly after we left. Like within like a couple of years after,
1: I think they were but, still trying to make it basically at the same standard they had. They couldn't make it a conservatory; they couldn't keep people out, so
0: they let people in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: but they still had it to the same standard. I don't know what it's been after we left.
0: Yeah, because I remember like seeing Tom, who was one of the two heads of the program and one of our great teachers. Um, I a couple of years after I did conservatory, I went to watch him in a play, and I was chatting with him after. And he was just saying that, like, I was like, oh, how's conservatory? And, like, he, I could tell he just didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> oh. He was, like, just so exasperated, you know? But, mm-hmm. he like, basically what the situation is is, like, the state was saying because it's a community college, you can't be exclusive. You can't right. require auditions. But what the state didn't understand is that having auditions was actually a draw, was actually a way to fill these classes that otherwise would not be able to exist because... Everybody always wants to take a brown bag theater class or an acting class, but not that many people want to take stage makeup or stage management. Mm -hmm. And so by like requiring us conservatory kids to take everything as part of a curriculum, they could ensure that the less popular classes had enough uh, enrollment to stay alive. And I, I don't know what the state is now, but I imagine... That a lot of those classes are probably dead in the water. And I didn't have been for some time. I didn't even consider that aspect of
1: it. I thought it was just to keep the level of your um, education higher because there are people that'll take classes and not be really invested in it because they'll just go, oh, let's see yeah. what it is. And you have a lot of people who aren't interested in acting just goofing around yeah. lowering the level. You know, I thought by yeah, having I mean, to auditions and get too. in, it would actually be, you know, higher levels. But
0: I know. It's crazy. I remember like being so nervous to audition, bro. I remember doing like a-, a Benedict monologue, and I think like the very first play I ever did, I Hate Hamlet, like a monologue from the end of that, which I still and I, I remember I couldn't stop my leg from shaking. Oh my god, dude! Wait, it's just so... one it's leg? so Funny. Which leg? I I th- I think it was. I, mean, I think it was my right leg, <laughs> my right leg that was very very jittery. That's your shaky <laughs> leg, <laughs> dude. It-, <laughs> it was my. It was. I don't have it anymore. Like I'm like I- I'm so much like. It is crazy thinking as you just get experience and you learn things like your nerves go down so much. Do you still and perform? things that were so daunting. Huh? You still perform? Like you do? I haven't in a while, uh-huh. but I do, like I still, I make it a point. Like what I what I'd honestly do most is write. Like mm-hmm. I mostly write screenplays and I, I do find that to be a very like... Like, I act it out as I go. Mm -hmm. Like, because I'm really trying to find, like, uh, it sounds kind of pretentious, but I'm trying to find honesty in it, right? And I I feel like it, when it really feels channeled through me is when I can, like, be really proud of it. But lately, I've been like, you know what? I want to, like, record myself acting more. Uh, And, like, that play we both love, Red, by John Logan. Oh, yeah. I've been going through that and, like, performing some of the monologues just for myself, just to kind of, just to have something to chew on. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? What about you? Have you performed lately, Eric? two things I want to say about that.
1: One, I don't think it's pretentious to want to find the honesty in it. I think that's what separates the level of art from kind of just having fun with acting. Um, So, And I think that we kind of get in our... I don't know if you do, but I do. I get in my own head about the level of quality of what I'm doing all the time. So I think having that filter of, oh, is this pretentious? I'm trying to get out of that mindset myself when I'm really, really pushing myself. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then as for the shaky leg thing, I wonder if you get into performing in front of people and trying to like, you know, get work or if you act in front of audiences, if you'll get that shaky leg back or if you've transcended that and now maybe you don't get as nervous. Maybe now you just have fun with it. I know I, mean, I still get nervous, dude. I, my... I've never not gotten yeah. nervous ever in my yeah. life. Yeah.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, no, I mean, I definitely, I feel like I have the experience of getting nervous right before and then it goes away. Okay. right away like, like the last time i performed performed in front of an audience was probably like when i graduated from cal arts and like just the showcase scenes and so i guess that that was a bit nervy because it was like oh it's for agents and managers and shit but i also i guess had the the comfort of being one of so many scenes and monologues mm-hmm. you know so it's kind of like oh i'm just like this cog in the wheel get up there for three minutes do my thing and then i'm off And so that was okay and the last performance i remember doing before that was when i did like a one-man show at cal arts Mm -hmm. and i was like insanely nervous before it began every night and Mm -hmm. i I was like hiding behind the curtain and i was like you know jittery af Mm -hmm. but then as soon as i was out there like it kind of dissipated and i was just having fun with people you know that's it that's an experience by the way eric i highly recommend what is fucking doing a a one-man show jesus christ yeah I bet. It, dude, I I wrote it. Like, I my intention, because we had this thing at CalArts called, like, the New Works Festival. Mm-hmm. And my Wait. intention was for it to be, like, 15, 20 minutes. But all this stuff, like, came out of me, and I ended up doing, like, an hour-long show. And... <laughs> it was meant to be 20 minutes? Dude, that poor audience. <laughs> they are probably like, fuck I know, this that guy. Was... <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> when I... <laughs> I wasn't selling it as, like, oh, come see my 15, 20-minute show. Like, when I started writing it, I intended to create a fifteen twenty minute thing, kind of as like a workshop. Oh, like, I see what you're saying. My... You didn't
1: you didn't just like Cosby yeah. them like come up into my hotel room and then they get something completely
0: else yeah. from what they said. It up was for. not that. It was not okay. that. Yeah. By the time people were coming, uh, I think I was clear that it was, it ran about an hour, but <laughs> I initially wanted to just kind of dip my toe into the one man show world, and I ended up just fucking deep diving in and like just that that energy of it all living and dying on you, is uh. It's probably the greatest stage thrill I, I've had. You know, Jesus. In my life.
1: I bet. Um, That's really yeah. cool.
0: That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Because you're thinking, does anyone give a fuck about what I have to talk about or what I'm going to do? And anyway, mm-hmm. um, did, um, did Loyola Marymount have anything like that? Like a kind of like works festival where you guys could make things and perform things with each other? Or yeah. We had a was thing. Was it kind of on you?
1: We had a thing called New Works where we had student directed, written, acted stuff. Um, and a few yeah. people have done some one man shows for them, but not nearly that long. I feel like it would be at most 15 minutes or something. Um, yeah, I don't think I've ever done a one man per- thing. Um, I don't know if I could, cause I don't even think I've seen enough one person things. I know someone did like fleabag, like a one Woman show of Fleabag, and I heard it was phenomenal, but I didn't get to actually see it. Phoebe
0: Waller Bridge. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think you can view it on Amazon or something. No, no, no. I'm talking about. I'm talking about someone that did it at LMU, like a student, and um. Oh, so she took the text and then like she performed as Phoebe.
1: Right, and I. I don't know if she just did exactly what it was because I haven't seen either, or if she made it her own and everyone was like amazed that she what she did with it. So I don't know. I'm just yeah. talking about absolutely nothing that I know. Um But then not, oh, but it's cool.
0: It's interesting. Yeah, I'm, and I'm I I get that kind Eric. of
1: sensitivity in terms of if you write your own thing and perform your own thing. It's kind of like doing stand up having that kind of um,
0: insecurity of like does anyone care about this? Like, I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. It is. It is. But like I that's kind of how I approached it in the sense of like let me try to have setups and punchlines and be funny. Mm-hmm. And like, like cuz I've I'd always wanted to do stand up have you ever i've never actually tried stand-up like the closest i've gotten was my one-man show was um like hosting you know hosting events and trying to throw some jokes in Mm -hmm. but But i've never had the gall to just get up there and do a stand-up set but i guess that was kind of comforting about the one-man show where it was like okay even if the jokes don't land as much i can like kind of hide behind the story structure and the things I'm trying to convey Mm -hmm. you know yeah so there there wasn't so much pressure on that and like I was inspired by like I had seen Hassan Minhaj's Homecoming King on Netflix Mm -hmm. which, which was like an interesting hybrid of the two um I had recently seen at Berkeley Rep when I was like home for like a break or something I saw John Leguizamo do um Latin History for Morons and I kind of went down, like, a John Leguizamo hole and watched videos of some of his one-man shows that he did on Broadway. Mm-hmm. I was kind of like, okay, yeah, like, I can do this. I can do this. And, like, it's such a fun vehicle to just, like, make characters and do accents and, like, move your body in funny ways and things like that, you know? Mm-hmm. But um, But, yeah, dude. And anyway, back to the whole nerves thing. What I was, like, w- what I wanted to say to you was just, like, it is crazy how much things that made me so nervous before, like, I, like, don't give a fuck about anymore and... <laughs> Like, I remember one of my early assignments at Foothill. Like, they were like, what do you want to work on as an actor? What do you think is, like, a weakness as an actor? And I wrote down, like, oh, I don't know what to do with my hands. And now, like, that's such a funny thing. Like, that's such a novice, amateur-y thing. Like, if you're worried about what you're doing with your hands, like, there's so many other things you need to be worrying about, like, <laughs> as an actor. And I guess uh, I'm just curious, like, how, how have you felt in... um. I don't know, how have you felt about your journey as a performer from your first days at Foothill through LMU to, to where you are now?
1: Well, I'd love to share this anecdote where Janice, you remember Janice, yes. So she was of one of the I two one of the two heads of that conservatory. She had the um what was what was the extreme intensive thing called where stretch, stretch. like the four stretch. hours Monday night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um Yeah, dude. She would push you past your weaknesses or where she thought you needed to be pushed and she was trained in this so she was like really good at it and I remember before I even took stretch she just had me aside with some other students and I forgot why I think we just had some downtime and she wanted to like push me to try something it was trying to like flirt in a scene and I always would get like um (laughs) I would just act silly because I'd get uncomfortable with like legitimately flirty and so I'd make it into a stupid joke as like a defensive mechanism. And so she was like, I want you to go up to that girl, the scene is she's sitting at a bar, you have to go up to her and you can't say take no for an answer. Which makes absolutely no sense to me where I'm like if a girl says she's not interested, it's like all right, bye and then I leave, you know? So I'm supposed to be a character, (laughs) I have to be be a character that's Mm -hmm. so full of confidence and won't take no for an answer and will get this girl's number. And so I would like walk up to her. I'd try things. She'd say no, and I'd be like, like not going anywhere else. And then she's like, Nope, start again. Nope, start again. Nope, start again. And then one of the takes, I just I walked up it. and like pulled the girl's hair, like I was in kindergarten or something. And she's like, No. <laughs> and so I don't know. This is just. I feel like, yeah. I feel like I've, I've at Foothill actually had more comfort jumping into completely thinking about character first. And I don't know if it's where we're at culturally now, but I feel myself more self-conscious about a whole lot of things where before I was really just focused on the craft of it. So I'm trying to actually yeah. get I'm trying to get back into thinking the
0: craft first and everything else yeah. after. So, I love that, dude. I mean, that makes me think of two things, one stretch and then two the actor and the target. But first with stretch man, I really miss that class. It was cool. It it was such a fun class. And just, I mean, for a little more context, if anyone's listening to this, like we, what it was is like Janice would get to know you your first year acting in the program, your tendencies, your strengths, you know, what you would kind of normally move toward energy wise and just try to find the complete opposite of that, something that you're not comfortable going to, right? Like for me, like there was a lot of stillness. There was a lot of sitting with things and kind of like heavier things because I can tend to be very flighty and finicky. And, you know, especially at the time, like my energy was kind of wild all over the place. And there were a lot of cool moments in stretch where it's like, it was like, it was like dramatic improv, even mm-hmm. though of course there was like a lot of laughing involved in like many of the scenes. It, <laughs> I it never had laughing really heavy places. <laughs> huh? Mine
1: were always so dramatic and so heavy.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean mine too. Mine too. Yeah. The class did have laughter, but mine were also very like super heavy, and you just sit with things longer than you're used to. Like there's no kind of eject button, you mm-hmm. know, when you feel like it's run its course, mm-hmm. which is cool. And like for for four hours every Monday night, we would just sit and watch each other and do it, and. I would love to like be a part of something like, like something like that again in the future. And Same. Um, the second thing you, yeah, it'd be super cool, dude. maybe like so we could get it going somewhere. Or you could get it going somewhere. I don't know if I'll ever live in LA again. Mm-hmm. But um dude, something that you also r- reminded me of Eric is um have you ever heard of this book The Actor and the Target by nope. Declan Donnellan? Nope. Bro, it's I think it's one of the best acting books I've ever read. And uh, it was recommended to us by our BFA two like Shakespeare year teacher at mm-hmm. CalArts. She's no longer there, but she was like a living legend. Like we I we I got her her last year at CalArts mm-hmm. and now she's teaching at Yale. Mm-hmm. But um her name is Mary Lou Rosato. She fucking was in the very first ever acting class of Juilliard Whoa. with Patty Lupone and Kevin Klein and um whatchamacallit. She recommended the book to us one day and she said like i read that book and i just thought everything you need to know about acting is is in here nobody ever no. needs yeah. to write another acting book you know like it's it's just the best so after and all so that time not
1: just not just where she was at the beginning or the start of it after all that time she still recommends it Like that.
0: Yeah, like in her 60s, you know, like after having performed. She was like, she she originated the role of um, the queen in Once Upon a Mattress on Broadway. Mm -hmm. I don't know if she won a Tony or got like a nomination or something. But anyway, and yeah, and after all that experience, all that time, she still like swore by the book. Mm -hmm. And uh, Declan Donnellan himself, I think is like of Irish descent, has done a lot of Shakespeare directing and also film directing. And the essence of the book Which I think kind of gets at what both of us are talking about in terms of being self-conscious, self-aware, right? Mm -hmm. Is like all you need to focus on is your target as an actor. It's never about you and about what you're doing. It's always about what you're trying to do, what you're trying to get. And the target is always moving, right? Like maybe it's the other scene partner. Maybe it's a specific thing you're trying to get to happen. And, like, he talks and he uses um, Romeo and Juliet as an example, like, constantly. Mm-hmm. He's, like, examined scenes and ways he might have directed the actors. And he kind of splits it down the middle of, like, every person, every character, like, every person is split between who they want to be and who they're afraid they might become. Mm. And, and so, so it's, it's, like, that. That, that those kind of two questions give you the movement you need to move through... Keep on paying attention to the target, and if you really do the work properly and, and you know keep your focus on that, then you're going to get through the whole play. You're not going to be self conscious. There's not going to be like this self critical eye watching you, and like tech like. I guess the point is we tend to do our best work when we're not focused on us. Right. right? So is this book
1: focused on the character's intentions,
0: or is it you as the actor? What do you want out of this scene? You know what I mean? Is well, that... definitely, the, definitely the character, you know, but it doesn't talk about it in this kind of ridiculous way where, like, you are the character. You become the character. And it's, like, it has that kind of grounding of, like, you're always limited by your body. You're always going to be you. Mm-hmm. But you can see things through the character's eyes and see it as the character and be, like, you know, through, as Romeo, like, this is what I'm afraid of. This is what I want. And, like, yeah, dude, I just... I, I can't recommend that book enough Mm -hmm. i think it um for me personally it did a lot to uh quell my insecurities and doubts and self-consciousness you know i think it's uh i think it's dope as fuck
1: i wrote it down dude i'm (laughs) gonna go get that book the problem with me is i have so many books that i've bought that i haven't read that i feel like i'm just gonna make a fort out of them and that's the best use i'm gonna get
0: (laughs) dude me too i've even seen memes where it's like uh, like authorly memes or writerly memes mm-hmm. and it's like um you know that drake meme from hotline bling where like one of them he's like pushing a thing away yeah and the right. other one he's like hey that sounds good mm-hmm. so the one he's pushing away is reading the books that i already own but haven't read mm-hmm. and the one that he's like hey is like <laughs> going to the store to buy new books yep yep and like <laughs> i i think we all struggle with that it's like our our um, in, in intention, I guess, our interests just like flickers. And it's like, oh, I want to read this. I want to read this. I read 10 pages and then I want to read something else. And actually just yesterday, I, I, as part of my, I don't know, it's not really like an actual New Year's resolution I wrote down, but I'm just trying to force myself to focus on one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of made a list of like, okay, this is like out of all the books that I have kind of begun and stopped, at various stages in the past, like year or two, I want to like one by one read all the way through it, really process it, you know, get what I can out of it, to like add to my life, add to my mind, and uh, and move through it like that, mm-hmm. and see. I, I just want to. It's like an almost like an, an experiment, I guess, that I'm trying with myself to see what uh, I guess how I feel after a few months. Of forcing myself to be more intentional with my days as opposed to like dabbling and being like very dilettante.
1: Well, I wonder if you can go ahead and give yourself the room to not not finish a book if you're like, this isn't for me and I would rather spend this time in a book that I'm getting more out of. And then
0: just never finish that book. Just throw it away or donate it or whatever. yeah. I think that's a good I think that's a good policy but I think for me it's like a lot of the books I read I've kind of like know what I'm getting into beforehand okay so, so it's not that I'm not interested it's just that like my attention span is so like oh now I'm interested in this yeah it's, it's yeah. very Gemini I it's wish Gemini. I could be
1: like Neo in the Matrix where you just plug it in your head and then you go through the lived
0: <laughs> process of it and it feels like a lifetime and then, and just, then you come out and you're like oh there's only a minute I love that. I know. It, uh, that would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. But you, but, you know, know, I think your suggestion is like also a good idea. Like it reminds me of something my former screenwriting teacher, Ernie, told us he used to do. Like he would just go on Netflix and he would just watch the first act of movies. Like just to see what people are writing, what what's getting produced, you know, what's getting on Netflix and just kind of paying attention to how is each filmmaker setting up the world before they launch us into the story mm-hmm. and in what instances do I actually want to sit and watch the whole movie? You Mm -hmm. know, like, because most of the time he's able to stop at the turn of the first act into the second act and be like, okay, like, I got what I wanted from that experience. But Mm -hmm. when when he encounters something that's really good, like, he wants to sit there and watch all three acts and, you know, and keep going. And I, I do think there is value in that. I had a problem in
1: in high school where if I started a movie, I had to finish it. And I think I still have that. I remember in high school, (laughs) I was watching As Good As It Gets, I think, with Jack Nicholson. And I was just mad. I was just mad watching it the whole time. Like, this is stupid.
0: (laughs) I fucking hate this movie.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's basically it, yeah.
0: But you finished it.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I don't think I got anything else out of it for finishing
0: it, but I had to finish it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, at the very least, you got to watch Jack Nicholson act. I, don't I really know. didn't.
1: Maybe I need to revisit that movie. Maybe I was too young to actually understand what's good about <laughs> Maybe it. Maybe you watch it now and you're like,
0: wow, this is brilliant. No, actually. I watch I it, now it now and myself. I'm like, that's
1: as good as it got was back in high school.
0: <laughs> that's as good as it. That'd be so funny. Like a little Letterboxd review. That's as. Are you on Letterboxd, by the way? I have Letterboxd. I have not used
1: it. And then I have the like meme page followed on Instagram. You know what I mean? Okay. Do you follow yeah, that Letterboxd out of
0: context? I do not. Oh, it's you not. would love not, it. It's funny. Go. I'm going to follow it and which i call it. Uh, I'll will follow you on Letterboxd too. Maybe you'll uh you'll be inspired to write some reviews. Maybe I will. I actually, dude, I only got on Letterboxd like halfway through last year because mm-hmm. my friend Max recommended it. Mm-hmm. And I got obsessed, dude. Like I kind of watched movies casually before. And I didn't really think about too many of them very deeply. Mm-hmm. But just being on Letterbox made me obsessed with, like, I wanted to just watch movies so I could think about what I thought about them and write about it. And I wouldn't really know what I thought about it until I, until I wrote. But I really wanted to, like, I thought it would ver- very much um, improve my own writing and would help me hone in on what I love as a storyteller mm-hmm. versus things I didn't like. Mm-hmm. And... um. I went nuts, dude. Like, I probably have reviewed, like, 160, 170 movies in the past, like, six, seven months.
1: You know, there's, like, seven processes to the idea of thinking. To, like, really fully think is, like, the thinking itself, reading, writing, all of that. And then there's, like... Acting out the thought so you get the experience of what actually comes from that thought And so the fact that you would watch yeah. the movie and write about it You are at a different level of thinking about movies than most people are
0: would you consider being a film critic? Well, dude, that that's what that's kind of something that I was like uh, Realizing in myself as I went on like I was almost becoming more cynical more jaded like th- like What we all grew up hating about film critics I felt like that tendency arising in myself and I was like oh my god this is how it happens oh where you just get sour about everything you're like not funny like John Mulaney you know yeah like a little bit Mm -hmm. but I was kind of the opposite where like I loved most things or like I would find appreciation in most things Mm -hmm. but when I really love something and I saw that somebody else really hated it (laughs) I would get kind of arrogant kind of <laughs> condescending like anybody who doesn't like this is a sniveling twat yep. like, stuff like that you know what i mean where i was like fuck you if you don't <laughs> think this is the greatest thing ever and yeah. um i i didn't want to feel so self-important you know but i i do want to write about film for the rest of my life but i like the, the idea of thinking my, of myself as a film lover as opposed to a film critic right because I also want to be somebody who does. Like, dude, the, the dudes who um, are behind Reno 911, Night at the Museum, a bunch of other stuff, like Herbie Fully Loaded and shit. Did you know that Lieutenant Dangle was, like, one of the biggest screenwriters in Hollywood? I did not. Dude, him and his partner wrote all the Night at the Museum movies and a bunch more stuff. Like, they've made their movies have made over a billion dollars at the box office. But anyway, I was shocked when I came across the book. Mm-hmm. Something, there's, like, a chapter in the screenwriting book. And it's like kind of a no-nonsense. It's called How to Write Movies for Fun. Mm -hmm. And then For Fun is crossed out in red marker. And then they put and Profit. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, it's silly, but it also gives you like a a look at like how Hollywood really works. Mm -hmm. And how studios really want things that are entertaining. You know what I mean? And like things that they know are going to work. And there was a chapter in there about critics. And it's saying, you're going to work so hard. You're going to overcome all these things. Your movie's going to get produced. And critics are going to have all these shitty things to say about it. But just remember that you're living their dream. Like, they wish they could create movies and be a part of filmmaking. You know? You know, that's... That's,
1: like, any type of critic or criticism of anything. Even if you aren't a critic, it's so easy to tear something down. And it's so difficult to actually make something. Like... If you think about it, like literally building a skyscraper takes so much planning, so much work, so much coordination, so much money, and then to tear it down, you're like, all right, everybody go stand over there. Boom. (laughs) You know? I know. I think there's more planning than that in skyscrapers, but still, it's it's the same thing with movies. It takes so much to make a movie, and it's so easy to criticize it and go, not good.
0: You know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it really is like blood, sweat, and tears for like two years usually at the least. You know what I mean? Sometimes much longer. And it's something that you really have to be able to live and breathe constantly, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, But, yeah, dude, so I definitely keep all that in mind. Like, I know there's also this short story that I frequently remember. And it's by this author named Tobias Wolfe. And it's called Bullet in the Brain. And so what it is is, like, there's the, the short story is set at a bank, And the protagonist is this critic. I forget what he's a critic of. Maybe like a literary critic. But we spend some time like hearing how cynical he is, how pretentious he is, how you know self-important he feels himself to be. And suddenly, there's a um, a robbery, and in the during the course of the robbery, the critic gets shot in the head. That's probably not good for him. I uh, know, probably probably not good. No spoilers. Uh, he probably doesn't make it out of the story. Uh oh. But <laughs> but like where the, the, the story really happens is in as the bullet is entering his cranium, like it's one of those your whole life flashes before you moments. Mm-hmm. And we see how he first got into writing about what he loved when he was younger and the passion that was there, the hope, the inspiration. And how over the years and over the decades that all just turned so sour, mm-hmm. and he lost that spark of of what initially inspired him, you know. And I I think of that because I don't want to be like that. Mm-hmm. And I just finished reading the second half of that play, Red, last night, and I think that same idea is there, where mm-hmm. Rothko is talking to his assistant, and just talking about like how when he got into painting, like the world was like this, and there was no criticism and no art, and you were by yourself, and this is how it was, and then his behavior throughout the play shows kind of how miserly he's become in certain ways and and maybe even self-deluded you know yeah i feel
1: myself i feel that in myself especially when i'm reading a whole bunch of scripts and i'm like this has been done before this character is a very shallow like uh just type or whatever and i start getting really judgmental and it's not healthy or helpful in any way um yeah and my my, i had a, a teacher at lmu that said you have to continually get inspired right it's like that flame when you watch a movie that really inspires you and you're like oh yeah that's why i'm doing this or you see a play or you see whatever you see someone do something that you get very grateful um and excited from seeing that from having that experience and then it carries you for a certain amount of time but every so but it'll die down that flame dies down again and you have to keep reigniting it essentially um yeah Yeah, and I think that with acting, it's really an endurance game uh, for things like that. So you do have to actually consume as well as create to keep that going, which is really interesting and cool.
0: I know, like I agree with you 100%, you know, and I think it is tough to find the balance because sometimes I'm consuming way too much. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I'm like escaping from creating. Mm -hmm. Like I know I should be writing. I should be finding ways to act even like for myself or work on a monologue or work on this. But it's like the fear, or as Stephen Pressfield says in his book, the um, the war of art, uh, resistance with a capital R, right? Mm-hmm. Like which is what he calls the force that tries to make you not do the creative thing you know you should be doing today, right? And like every day is a battle to overcome resistance.
1: That idea like, of should oh I should be working on this is what kills my creativity because then it's not fun anymore. Really? Then yeah, because then it's like ah. then it's work that I have to be doing. Like I remember that's why I never really learned math is my mom would sit me down and like scream at me if I didn't understand something and we we're sitting at like the oh, kitchen yeah, yeah. table late at night and it's just the most miserable process. And so if I have the mentality of should for creating art, it'll just. It just feels terrible and I don't enjoy it. I have to actually get excited you know, about it.
0: I know what you mean. And you know what? Maybe maybe should was a, a careless word to use on my part. Maybe a better way to describe it is like, I think all of us creatives, like there's something that we sit with that we're like, damn, I really want to make this. Like, I really want this to exist. Mm-hmm. But then we let fear that it's not going to be perfect, it's not going to get made, it's not going to go over well. You know, all those little things that that come in, like, it's almost like, why bother? Why even bother trying? You know, and I think more days than not, the majority of creatives get stifled by that feeling, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and I think the only way to really overcome it is to just kind of set aside time. Like, I still, like, even with all this stuff I'm preaching, I still find it, Difficult to overcome that hurdle every day, Mm -hmm. you know, but then every single time when I like kind of force myself to sit down and like, okay, you're just going to open up the document, give yourself 15 minutes maybe, and just see if anything comes to you. I have never not had ideas come. Yes, and you know? that's why I think like,
1: should isn't careless. It's just like it is a discipline. You have to actually sit down yeah. and make yourself do it. It's just, for me, the framework yeah. of, I like, again, saying I want to do this, right? I want to spend yeah. 15 minutes on this, and I know I'm going to have a good I get time. get to.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and it's true. It's like that, that feeling of inspiration. It's like you're flying, right? It's mm-hmm. like that's what we live for. And that's something I try to remember too when I'm creating is like, don't even think about what the critics will think, if it gets made or not, right? It's like just the action in an in and of itself of letting yourself be creative, that's the shit right there. Mm-hmm. Like, like that's what a creative life is all about. It's like that's, you just wanted to express in the first place. You just wanted to play pretend in the first place. And mm-hmm. if you can find a way to, have enough money to like, you know, have food to eat and have like a roof over your head and you get to keep playing and exploring all these things that interest you, then that's the dream, right? Well, it's also interesting
1: how you actually get good at it, too, by smaller increments of growth. It's kind of like exercising. If you exercise after a few days and you don't have a six-pack already, and you're like, well, damn, I don't have a six-pack, or you learn how to play the guitar, and a week into it, you're not already like a guitar master, and you're like, well, what am I doing this for? And increments of growth seem invisible is what's so interesting, but you are significantly getting better, and it's just harder to see sometimes, especially if your goal is so far in the future and so far not where you're at you know
0: absolutely like as cliche as it is like i think it is so true that you have to focus on incremental daily progress Mm -hmm. as opposed to you know the 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 whole picture and you have to you know take the step in front of you even if you can't see the whole staircase Mm -hmm. and like for me as a writer or like over the past several years i mean the majority of the time like that resistance has stopped me from writing you know, and I get in my head, and I'm, even though I hear people say, the more you write, the better you'll get at it. Mm -hmm. I was always kind of possessed of the fear that, oh, well, I only have so many good ideas, and if I get them out, then I'm not going to have anything else, Mm -hmm. you know, and I let that stop me, and I found that I was wrong. Like, I found that, like, the more I read about writing, the more I wrote, it's true. Like I I understand it so much better. I can do it so much more easily. Like I used to think like, oh I need to wait for these precious awesome ideas. And now I feel like, give me any topic, give me any theme, give me any journey and I'll figure out how to write a story about it. There's a bright eyes
1: lyric where he says, I'd rather be working for a paycheck rather than waiting to win the lottery. You know, and I feel like that's a lot of creative mindset is I'm going to wait for this big thing or I'm going to, you know, and then during that big opportunity, that'll give it to me. Something else will give it to me rather than working a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and then significantly getting better and finding more opportunities
0: yeah i i think that's amazing and and dude and what you said earlier too about like getting jaded about things and like oh it's been told before blah 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 like there's um this david lynch quote that i'm always getting on instagram like my my feed regurgitates it to me every so often but it's just this quote he has where it's like oh i think young writers are too concerned with this idea that everything's been said before and he's like sure it has but not by you Mm -hmm. and like I think that's there's such deep wisdom in that, and like some a, a thinker that I really really uh, has given me a lot of useful ideas in my life, a lot of empowering ideas is Jordan B Peterson, mm-hmm. and there's this thing he he said about storytelling that I think really applies, where he's like, the stories that really impact us, the stories that really, um, you know, I guess are, are great stories, it's when the archetypal co- co- coincides with the personal. And so it's like there are these kind of human experiential truths and these these characters and these these ways of behavior that are timeless and that we're all familiar with because we've seen it acted out time and again. And like we know people who live this way time and again, but what really grips us is when we see that truth in a way where it's with like, oh, but these are the specific experiences that Eric has had. Mm-hmm. And like, this is this is the way that truth manifested for him. Well,
1: I don't you know, even know or... if... I, I agree with that. And I think that that's why people can watch stories by... Like, of other people in completely different circumstances, and still feel Mm -hmm. that connection because it's the human trait that drives the people that you identify with, not literally exactly what happened. You know, and I think the more that you watch things like art of others, I think, is it a Mark Twain quote that said to get rid of uh racism and bigotry or whatever else you have to travel more essentially is because the more experience more varied experiences you have the more you realize how similar humans are and how much you actually connect and so the archetypical is in all of us in some ways and it's just amazing to watch yeah. people in completely different circumstances still play things to you that make sense, or don't yeah. make sense. Like sometimes I get in my own head when I'm watching something, and I go, why would that character do that? That's a stupid thing to do. And then I have to kind of check myself, and I go, wait, why would that Why would that make sense to that character, rather than looking from my own head out, going, that's a dumb decision. Is there yeah. any reason that would make sense to that character? And then you actually start thinking from that character's perspective rather than your own all the time, you know? And yeah. and that's the amazing thing to me it's about beautiful. acting is the adaptability, right? Like, so if a director gives you a note that you don't agree with, or if, you're yeah. co- if your co-star uh, makes a choice that doesn't make any sense to you, or it just seems stupid, yeah. instead of judging it from you as the actor, going, well, that choice doesn't make sense, you can make up literally anything of why that would make sense. You can come up with anything. Yeah, that's true. You know, and so... Yeah, you
0: can, like, always make excuses. make excuses.
1: Yeah, I mean, even if... It, it's not even really an excuse if you make it something full. I think I derailed from yeah. where you were going, though, with the archetypes. No, no, I just, think that's
0: very applicable. Yeah. No, I mean, I love that, you know? And I, and I think that is... I, I agree, like, that's, to me, the magic of acting, the magic of storytelling is, like, as a pure empathy machine mm-hmm. right and like reminding us that we're all the same also bro i love how you're such a fucking quotes guy me and you eric we're fucking quotes guy. <laughs> you just broke up i didn't hear pod anything pod. you said
1: wait you like what oh, no.
0: i was saying i love that you're a quotes guy oh yeah it's like i feel like you and i bro we're like two fucking peas and we're two quote guy peas in a pod you uh-huh. know <laughs> but no I'm saying I I love acting and storytelling for that reason too as like an empathy machine Mm -hmm. empathy inducing device Mm -hmm. and I think I feel like there's two sides to the coin of what you're just saying Eric where it's like one I do think it is great to think wait why would this character do that and is it believable is it true right is it Mm -hmm. something that has happened in a way that people would actually behave and in a lot of cases especially in good writing it is and when it's surprising and truthful that's i think what's the most satisfying but i think also as a writer like we have to also be careful because sometimes it is just totally not believable or not truthful Mm -hmm. and like people are going to be kind of uh, they're going to be pulled out of your story Because nobody believes it. right? Nobody believes that somebody would act this way in those circumstances. And that's where you
1: just make the excuse, right? If it is legitimately bad writing, but you as an actor, ideally, if you're a good actor, you're trying to come up with some reasonable reason, then it's just an excuse. Then it's like, I'm trying to salvage what I can from that. But it it does not
0: make sense. Yeah. (laughs) I know. Like, a good actor can do a lot, but but there's only so much that can be done to a... To save bad writing, as evidenced by um, Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man movies, right? I haven't seen any of those. <laughs> well, you're not missing much. Okay, I'll tell cool. You. <laughs> I'll tell you that, Eric. But um, and Eric, you know something I was wondering too is like, how do you, how do you feel about LA, living in it? You know, like, because I feel like we all had such specific ideas about what Hollywood was like. You know. Like, did you think it was a meritocracy before you got there? Like, did you think that you know, you were talented enough or special enough where, you know, things would just happen and you would just be booking roles and it'd be like smooth sailing or like, did you expect that it'd be very challenging and tough and something you'd have to stick with for decades? I just, I'm just curious and I'll, I'll let you know my, you know, side of things, but I, I want to hear you first. Yeah. Like, uh, no, I just, you know,
1: it's funny because there's so many different levels to that. If we're focused on career growth-wise, um, or if we're focused yeah. on legit, legitimately just satisfi- satisfaction with living here kind of thing. Um, when I first Holiday. came here, a friend told me that LA is very isolating if you don't find your um, niche or your community or something like that. And I didn't understand it at the time. Um, and yeah. then, yeah, as you, if you don't have if you don't have friends that you actually kind of really care about and you see on a weekly or monthly or something basis, it's difficult. It's very lonesome because you think, wow, I'm in this big city. There's all this stuff to do. What am I supposed to do? You know, like and then you have nothing to do. I and know. I don't know how much COVID has affected that and all that other stuff too. But, um, and then in yeah. terms of, in terms of growth, uh, I feel like I'm doing everything, quote unquote, the right way. You know, like I came here, I went to college, I did the showcase, I got an agent. So it's like I'm taking the necessary steps, but still feeling as lost as you do. Am I not moving fast enough or am I even not moving in the right direction or any of that? I know that whenever I would have this conversation with other actors, um, like how did you make it to this level? How did you do this? They could never really give me the answers because it's so unique and specific to them that it's it's a creative you have to have like a kind of creative strategy about it where it only works for you and the more you focus on it and getting better at it like i'm in the process right now where i have my notebook and i'm just kind of writing out my acting strategy um, and steps that i think i should be taking with that moving forward And I know Adam Scott, there was an interview he did on some late night show where he said he was acting for 15 years before he really got anything and it was all low-budget, poorly made films. Um, Yeah. Yeah, so 15 years of that. That's why it's like an an endurance game. If you can enjoy it, if you have fulfillment in other aspects of your life that have nothing to do with acting, you know, if you have like a hobby or friends or whatever else you like to do and then you act when you want to... You'll have the endurance yeah. for moving forward with that. So there's a lot of caveat. I was um, I was kind of disappointed with the lack of trees down here. Like all the like hiking trails, <laughs> all the hiking trails That's are like shrubs and stuff.
0: Huh? huh? That's the biggest disappointment of uh, of Hollywood, huh? Is not enough trees.
1: I mean that, and also coming from the Bay Area, I love overcast, windy, rainy, green kind of stuff, and. I don't know if I'm a city living kind of person. So there's so many different elements of finding out if I enjoy it or if I don't that I think only travel will kind of answer that question, like travel and time and experiences, you know? Yeah. Sometimes I'm really hopeful about living in LA and I enjoy parts of it. And then
0: sometimes I'm kind of like, do I want to live here? I don't know. But tell me about you. How long long have you lived here? Is this a fucking hole? Well, no, (laughs) Eric, I don't even live in LA. I'm in Sydney right now. No, I know that, but you lived here, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I lived in L.A. for a while. But Wait, Eric, before we move on, though, to me, yeah. I want to ask you. There are people who feel like L.A. is kind of a hole and that it's full of people who, like, nobody knows what the fuck they're doing. Do you know, just Congregate. I want to interrupt you
1: and and say that Father John Misty quote where it's, like, the people pretending they don't yeah. see the actress and the actress wishing that they could. Do you know Father John Misty? Yeah.
0: I know He. I haven't listened to much of his music, but I do know him.
1: Okay, okay. But anyway, yeah, sorry, it's a hole, is it what you're saying? And there's people that congregate here for the dream and then the dream is shattered. Is that what you're going towards?
0: I mean, that idea, yeah. And like, (laughs) do you agree with that? Do you feel like it is like a bunch of people who get together for meetups and they're hoping somebody's going to have the answer of like what they should do next or the next opportunity? I think. But nobody has it and everybody is like lost.
1: (laughs) I think a lot of people come here with that dream the imagined dream of like, this is what it's going to be like and somebody else is going to give it to me. And I know that I have that sometimes too where I'm like, what would happen if I was just walking down the street and there was some movie producer and he was like, I like your look, come be in my movie. You know what I mean? And that's such like an unhealthy... Even just for a fantasy of imagination, that's not healthy because you completely remove your own agency and your own control in your life of what you should be doing for your own career. Um, and I think yeah. people I think it kind of sets people up for heartbreak because it's not they don't come here with a yeah. realistic, accurate view. And I think actually growing up on movies, I feel like my entire life has been somewhat misled by film and so the aspect of just what life is what reality is um seems so much more dull or or you feel more let down when you have your expectations somewhere in fantasy like oh like a perfect example of this is harry potter's fucking friends dude so harry potter in like these movies (laughs) in these movies his friends are always like whoa i sure wish my best friend was here and you see them say that and then harry's there and he's like what's up bitches i'm here right and it's like your yeah. friends are never just sitting around being like i sure wish this friend was here like it's just like if you watch I know. those movies and try to think if i had that expectation for life i wish i had friends that went like this and i wish i had this and, and it's just really funny it was a I was maybe under the influence of some marijuana when I was watching these movies. And I was like, no wonder my expectations (laughs) of life are
0: so high. (laughs) That's so funny. No, but I I get you, dude. Like, because I very much felt that way, too. Where, like, when I was really living in L.A. and just being down there, like, a lot of my illusions were shattered as Mm -hmm. I started to see the machine as it really was. Yeah. And... Like, it is crazy because, like, that movie Red Rocket by Sean Baker, which is, like, my favorite movie I've seen of last year, the, um, the girl who plays Strawberry, like, the main girl in the movie, she literally moved to L.A. She was there for a hot second. Sean Baker saw her, I think, in, like, the lobby of Arclight or something mm-hmm. and literally was like, I like your look. Would you want to be in a movie? Here, shoot me an email. And, like, she didn't hear from him for months, but then when it was time to do the movie like he was there and then he got her in the movie but that's like that's like winning the lotto (laughs) right and it's like you don't know, like, you you get you hear so many things in LA where it's like, oh, well, you should be making your own web series, or you should be doing improv classes, and maybe you audition for SNL, or maybe you get on a TV show, or maybe it's like none of that, and maybe like you just audition, and you get the right project, and then suddenly that leads to this, and leads to this, and then, and then you can do your own show, and your own work, and have a little more agency, or like, maybe it's like, you need to go produce a play, and then invite you so and so and they they see you and they see your talent and then they put you in something or they give you some opportunity it's like everyone has like a million stories of how it happened and how they met this person and cuz they did this work and you really just don't know what it is for yourself and who has but the like, money cuz everybody's trying to sell you on oh you need to be taking these classes right you need yeah, to be doing right. this you need to be going Working to these networking on your events craft. huh like, you need to be working on your craft yeah. in these acting classes that cost all these hundreds of dollars a month or whatever. Yeah. I know what you mean, dude. And, like, for me, I, I mean, I'll, I'll be very forthright. I was very arrogant going to L.A. Like, I, I very much had this idea that, like, you know what? I, I think I read a statistic when I started doing theater in high school that, like, 3% of actors are able to make a living on acting. And I was like, all right then, I have to be better than 97% of the actors out there. Let me fucking really do it, you know? And at that time, I really did believe things were a meritocracy, which I don't think at all is the case. Like, there are so many talented people with no opportunities, and there are so many, you know, mediocre to okay people that get great opportunities. Yeah. And it's like, there's just, there's just so many other factors that go into, you know, the the business, the machine that is Hollywood and what your type is and what your ethnicity is and what they're looking for and what they think is hot right now. Mm-hmm. Like an example of that dude is even with like Euphoria. I remember like during the first season, there was so much press about um the Aussie dude, Jacob Elordi. Like that was like, oh, that's like the hot guy. This is like the type of guy that like, you know, girls want, girls think is hot. And now with the second season, all the press is on Angus Cloud. And And it's like him, his type of guy, and like Pete Davidson kind of guys, like all the hype is around these kind of drugged out, you know, (laughs) kind of losery looking guys who are probably like chill or funny or, like the trends of what is seen as desired like change so quickly. Mm -hmm. And So, so I had this idea that like, I'm gonna go there, Uh, I'm going to get a great agent right out of Showcase. And then I'm just going to, I'm going to book small things, but I'm going to be booking constantly. And it's just going to be like a kind of solid, like like an uphill gradual slope of like the one liner will lead to more three liners, which will lead to small parts, which will lead to lead roles, Mm -hmm. you know, and like just seeing the, I guess, the chaos and the randomness of how it actually works (laughs) for everybody. Yeah. Uh, was very eye-opening. How long were you you down here? Well, I mean, I I went to CalArts for four years, so I was living up in, like, Valencia, and I would, like, go into the city every so often, just going around, seeing shows, going to maybe, like, social events. You know, um, my last year, I got a short film in the um, Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival, and so I went to, like, some of those events, you know. And then, um, but after I graduated, dude, I was there for, like, less than a year. And then like, I just kind of like, like my showcase and I I did get a manager and I did go on like, you know, a a decent amount of auditions that like that uh, for about a year, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But just seeing what Hollywood was and then falling in love with my partner who I'm out here living with in Australia, it just made me realize, you know what, like this is not the path for me. Mm -hmm. Like I'm a lot more into writing and telling my own stories right now and like, I don't need, I don't want to be in LA auditioning for things like so far away from her. And like, it didn't make sense for her to move to LA to be with me. You know what I mean? Like it just made more sense for me to come here. Congratulations and, like, on I, that, by
1: the way, on having a partner that you feel so in love with that you moved to, you know, Australia and you're still happy and still with. That's really cool. Um, and I think yeah, that actually is, gives you, gives you more control over your own life when you do realize you don't need the industry. You know what I mean? As long as you're doing what you love, um, you can try to find your way back into it if you want to. But if you're just doing what you love and you're finding in Australia, I think who someone gave me, I think it was a publicist gave advice about how you want to become a big fish in a small pond first, and then you take that following with you to a little bit bigger yeah. pond, you know? So if you become, um, well known, if you wanted to become well known in Australia, and then with that transfer over to America again, you can find your way back into the industry. Cause I know auntie Donna, you know them, right? Yeah, yeah,
0: I know. And they had their Netflix thing picked up and they do like a lot of improv and like an improv podcast. And they're from Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah. And whatchamacallit, Ronnie Cheng too. Ronnie Cheng. he's like in Crazy Rich Asians and Shang Chi mm-hmm. and all these things. He was like raised between Singapore and the States, but he went to college in Melbourne and he ended up getting like a show on stand here. And like it's filmed at the University of Melbourne. You know, he had his own sitcom. And, like, it really is, it really is possible wherever. You know it's like, and that's why you, I think you really do have to just tune into your heart and what's unique about you and the stories you want to tell. you know, and um we're we're trying to move to the Philippines actually, um like within this year, I, I mean, with things with Omicron are so crazy. We don't know that's, when that's gonna happen. But the way I see my life going is just like writing a lot, producing, you know, a TV show in the Philippines. I want to produce um indie films and like submit it to like Sundance and Can and like, you know, tell your ride. Right. just like, or whatever, Toronto, like just submit it to the film festival, see what happens. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and just focus on living a creative life that way and stop being so attached to the idea that I've kind of had most of my life of like desiring the approval of Hollywood. Right. And desiring the approval of like, you know, these gatekeepers who like I thought like, could make me a star and make me, you know, give me this life. No, but if you're um,
1: living each day and you're pretty satisfied each day with how you're taking it, I mean, that's success. That's that's it right there. And you're so knowledgeable, yeah. too, on the process and the industry. Like, you know the festivals. You know the timing of them. You know all of this stuff that I think that if you're just enjoying each day, the success comes to you, you know? Mm-hmm. I
0: I agree, dude. And I feel like even if, like, the outward success doesn't come, like, for example, dude, I listen to... um. A podcast interview with this filmmaker who which festival did he get into it was one of the big ones I'm thinking it might have been Toronto it might have been Sundance but anyway this guy's career began like 15 20 years ago he got a film into Sundance it led to him getting like a a studio movie deal and things like that and his career kind of died down right and so maybe 15 years later Him and his friend are like obsessing about this new feature they're making. Like we gotta get into one of the big festivals. We gotta get into one of the big festivals. And so they got into the big festival and their movie played, but this one didn't lead to any big deals or any big, you know, any big next projects. And they were on the plane ride back home and he was like, do you feel any differently than you did before we played our film at the festival? And his partner was like, no, not really. And like he said, that's like a reality, too, where like you might just be another one of the films that got to play at one of these big festivals. Mm-hmm. And so like these things that we look to towards success that are to, to give us this feeling like aren't even reliable. And it's like the process of having written the script and gotten the movie made and produced it like that's where the magic is. You know, and that's like, if we can appreciate that, then that's when we're really winning, you know? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, it also feels like even with super famous celebrity, right? When you think that fame is a marker of success and then fame is so temporary and fleeting and you see the people trying to work their way back up to that level of attention, you know what I mean? And this is kind of like, it's this need of something or someone else rather than finding the control in your own life that'll lead to your unhappiness. You know, it's always yeah. like, why yeah. surrender all the agency you have to something that doesn't care about you that might not even ever notice you when you can live your entire life in your control, you know? Um, yeah. yeah so making the films and being like, Hey, I made that. I'm, I'm glad I made that. Cause it is a lot of effort to just make something and then continue yeah. to spend time with the people you care about and make another thing and live a life like that. And then, yeah, that's. I think that's the actual truth of living there.
0: I know, right? Like, that's what we're all trying to get to, trying to fight all these, like, urges inside of us that spring up of, like, discontent and, yeah. like, it's... Uh, I remember, dude, um, do you know that movie, The End of the Tour? And it was about David Foster Wallace and Jason Segel played him? No. Uh, it's a great movie. I'd highly recommend it. I think you would really dig it. Cause I'm a like, freaking yeah. quote philosophy guy like me. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's a thing Jason Siegel said when he was getting interviewed about it he's like, I think humans, like we have this thing that our brain just does where no matter what we achieve, our brain, like the, our, our personal definition of success, we constantly put ourselves just right outside of it. Right. Cause know? it's
1: always the grass is greener on the other side. It's always like, Oh, once I get there, I'll be happy. And then you get there and either you realize you don't actually want it or you get there and the next step is something else. Right. And you're like, actually, that's it. That's what I want. You
0: know? <laughs> like. Yeah, and it's tough because it's like I feel like we do it subconsciously, Mm -hmm. and like it's tough to just be like it. It it really takes so much work and self awareness, and for me, like meditation and journaling to like daily try to remind myself to enjoy my day Mm -hmm. and to be grateful for what's in my control, and like I get so anxious and I get so sad about these like desires for other things that spring up that like intellectually. I know that I do not want, and are not good or helpful for me, and are are built on you know like matches, but for some reason emotionally it's so tough to overcome them a lot of the time. Yeah, no, I'm and such that a hypocrite.
1: Like... I'm like, oh yeah, just enjoy every day, and you know, and over here I'm losing my mind. I'm like, I'm not where I need yeah. to be. I'm not where I want to be right now. If only I could get this, yeah. and I'm just such a hypocrite. I know. It's because I'm on a podcast, Dude, and I'm like, I know the right thing to say. Sure. <laughs> <I don't... laughs>
0: dude we're so funny as humans right like just like the fact that like we're aware of all these things that would make our life so swell mm-hmm. and then we can't fucking make ourselves do it consistently but i guess that's the journey <laughs> yeah you know? and you know something eric i was also curious about is like um i when i was reading no no i was listening to nicholas cage get interviewed on the hollywood reporters podcast awards chatter and he was talking about his performance in the movie Pig, mm-hmm. which I did really enjoy. I don't know if you've seen Pig. But I have not. It. That's on my list, um, though. So I should watch yeah. what you're saying? Okay. It's very, like, subversive. Yeah. Like, it's just, like, I don't want to spoil it, but, like, the things that... Y- it does a very good job of bringing you to expect certain things mm-hmm. and then hitting you with things that, like, you've never quite seen before. Oh, And cool. I was like, wow, th- this is really cool, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, But um, something Nicolas Cage was saying is like he's had periods in his life where he just wants to not do movies. He just wants to like, you know, go away by himself and read a bunch of philosophy books all day and just think about life. And, you know, think about all these ideas that all these great philosophers have had. And I really related to that. I was like, damn, I wish I could do that as well. Because I'm mm-hmm. so like fascinated by those ideas, but I know it's not practical. And for him, it wasn't practical because, you know, he was like the the the, the uh, movie industry. If you step away, like they're not, they're not going to necessarily be welcoming when you decide you want to come back. Mm-hmm. You know. And I was just wondering if that was something you relate to, if you feel drawn towards, like, philosophy and philosophers and what role, I guess, that plays in your life, if any.
1: Do you think that's true for Nicolas Cage in particular, that if he stepped away, he couldn't come back? Or is it that he can't come back at the level he would be at, right? Because it's kind of like you have to yeah. stay on top of the attention. But I think there's a point when you reach it that if you come back, it's a bigger deal that you come back, you know? That's
0: true, like a, like a third actor, like, a, you know like a reinvention or something like that. But I I mean, I guess only time will tell, but I understand the fear Mm -hmm. because it's not something that you can change your mind about. And like, let's say you try to come back and it doesn't go successfully, Mm -hmm. then you're fucked.
1: Yeah, I had a manager teacher
0: at LMU that
1: was saying that someone decided to step away to focus on like raising her kid and she was gaining a lot of momentum. But because she stepped away, she never made it back up to that level she was at. And if she had kept going, she might have gotten, you know, pretty high. Um, But again, then it comes down to like, what is your life worth? What are you actually interested in? And what do you find fulfilling, you know, because again, if absolutely it's like, okay, you might become more famous and have more opportunities with certain things. And if you're career oriented, that's fine. But then you don't want to wake up career oriented, realizing you should have been family oriented or vice versa. You know what I mean? You don't want to be family oriented and then be like, damn it. I really wish I was career oriented. So I know it's tough.
0: It's tough to find the balance. Either way, it might be a
1: trap. Yeah. Uh, But in terms of philosophy, what are the trade-offs? in terms of yeah. philosophy i was i had a therapist actually that i was seeing for the past couple of years um and that turned into cuz i stopped going to him for therapy but he was having these courses cuz he's you know really educated and great philosophers and he wanted to go through a whole lot of history and a whole lot of um i guess just lessons of life and I I took these seminars is what they kind of were. And it was very small groups of people. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a lot of stuff that he shared with me that I wrote down and that I was trying to apply to my own life, but it comes back down to the discipline of it, right? It comes down to, you actually have to implement it because you can read and you can think and you can do a whole bunch of that, but it's not really useful if you don't put it into practice. Like that's part of it is it has to be practiced so yeah yeah so that's actually that's on my list of that's probably top on my list is to put everything into practice and see what happens rather than theorize about
0: a lot of things
1: let's just do it i know what you mean
0: yeah i know it's it is it is a trap that i've felt myself falling into before too is just thinking and writing so much without actually like finding ways to put the action into my life Mm -hmm. but i mean um like, do you, do you seek out, like, philosophy books to read? Like, are there philosophers that you really like? I, I or is it something more of like, you know, you get bits and pieces here and, and, and just find it interesting and useful?
1: I absolutely love conversation for learning more about people and about life. And if somebody knows something that I don't and they explain the concept to me, I get way more engaged in that. I think, rather than if I read it myself, because if I read it myself, it's mostly just my lens absorbing it. If I'm having conversations with people, it's not just my lens, it's their lens, too. And then we're, like, bouncing these ideas off of each other. Um, And I remember, for example, it's kind of like really well-written screenplays or, or, um, or novels where you had an English teacher, right, that would explain to you the symbolism and the subtext and here's what the author actually meant. And you're a kid and you're kind of like, whoa, I never would have thought that, but that's such an interesting dimension of thinking to be able to see that. And I don't know how much, and I I try to stay away from just calling myself stupid, (laughs) but I don't know how dumb I am and just go like, well, it all goes over my head. But if somebody explains it to me, I get fascinated with it, right? So... Yeah. If you watch uh, Succession, I watched a um a breakdown of characters of this last season and there's yeah. so much that I found fascinating that went over my head and I know I've spent time with people that have explained things to me in ways that like it was just amazing and every now and then I I you know impress myself but <laughs> yeah no yeah. for in terms of in terms of philosophy um and in terms of getting into deeper levels of consciousness and character i find myself the more i'm actually engaged with another person rather than a book or even a movie by myself uh, the more fulfilling it is though i do think it's helpful to read it or watch it on my own first and then have that conversation that way at least i practice trying to get something like the most out of it and then i can see you know
0: how much i thought about it and how much i fell short Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, and dude, I think you deserve more credit. You know, I I really feel like it's like not necessarily like a stupid or intelligent thing. I really do feel like it's just practice. Yeah. And it's like I feel like it's almost like learning languages, right? Where it's like the more you practice talking about these things or exploring the thoughts, the more naturally it kind of comes to you. Yeah. And you just you just start to see things through that lens. You start to think that way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, for example, like I've found that way like with like um, movie criticism, right? And like, and just writing my thoughts out, like I used to think that like, oh, I didn't get serious movies before or like classic movies or, you know, I'd be in classes with like film students at CalArts and be like, oh, like I don't really understand how to write about these or talk about these the way these students would, I'm just an mm-hmm. actor. Mm-hmm. But it really was just like, oh it's actually not that complicated if you're just interested with it and engage with it. And then it just like really like builds from there. Right, you know, so like, I saw like,
1: Parasite, it's... right, in theaters and there were yeah. things that I picked up on that the people I was with, they didn't, but there's things they picked up on that that I didn't. And so as we're talking about it and they bring up something I didn't notice until they mentioned it, we, we all get yeah. super excited. We're like, oh yeah, this, this, the birthday cake could have represented this, you know? And it's, yeah, it's yeah, really yeah, yeah. cool.
0: <laughs> have you seen Parasite yet? Yeah, you have. I love Parasite, yeah. Okay. I think it's, like, a perfectly crafted movie. Yeah. You know, it's, it's brilliant, you mm-hmm. know? Um, I, I'd love to, like, you know, make a movie out of the Philippines that, like, does for the country, like, what Parasite did for South Korea. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's... I think it's uh it's super cool. Mm-hmm. Freaking Bong Joon-ho, man.
1: <laughs> and I think that's I know, literal
0: I like that. artistry. I think that is what makes it,
1: um, like, great literature. Things that will be studied in, in time, you know? Um yeah. And if that's, and that's, and this is where I get like a little get bit caught up in my own head of pretentiousness is thinking that I can make it to that, which that holds you back. If you start having that criticism or like, Oh, this is ridiculous. Like what you said earlier about actually writing and sitting there and writing it. It's like, no, you're supposed to get inspired and excited. And that's the only way you make it is by thinking you can make it and working in that way. Yeah. You can't go already criticize yourself and be like, well, it's, Foolish of me to even think I could get to that point, you know, like,
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like it's it's important to know what connects with you so you know what you're aiming at. Yeah, because I feel like all artists, uh, I feel like our journey is just bringing our skill level up to our taste, right? Because right? we all we all start out with much better taste than where we we can't make something that we think is very good in the beginning. Mm-hmm. but you you learn through experience. you get better and better. And like Boonjong ho, dude, like, He's been making movies for decades, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's been practicing filmmaking and you know, he's very respected in certain circles and he just got to a place where like he he says that Parasite, the whole thing, the whole like basic structure of the movie just appeared in his head. Like it was mm-hmm. like whole. It was like, "Oh, that's that's the story." You know? And mm-hmm. if you like kind of look at it um I guess thematically and in terms of genre and things like that, like You actually can break it down where it's like, okay, that at its heart, it's kind of a simple story about like class struggle of like rich versus poor. And then, you know, how is this manifesting in Korea? How is this manifesting between these particular characters? What are these people willing to do because they feel like they don't have a fair opportunity? And then he kind of takes like the thriller genre. And he said like he loves genre. He really knows like the expectations of genre, but he also loves to try to like subvert it and break it and and, and give people things they weren't quite expecting, you know? And so I think Parasite does that very successfully, Mm -hmm. you know, in the the ways that like he plays with the tropes and then kind of upends them and little things that happen. Mm -hmm. And like, it's just, I don't know. I I, I just, I'm so in love with the idea of the human mind as like, this is something I got from Tom Bilyeu, who does like impact theory, like motivational stuff. Mm -hmm. And he's like the founder of Quest Nutrition but he talks about the brain as like the ultimate synthesis machine and he says like i could, you and i jeremy and eric could read the exact same 10 books and we would come out different people we would come out take having taken different things from those 10 books well you know and dave grohl's her- quote about that right where he There's that's what quote. he loves
1: about performing for an audience is that you can sing one song to thousands of people and they sing it
0: back to you with thousands of different interpretations Yeah. Right. And it's like it it, the same words, the same ideas mean something different to all of us. Mm -hmm. And like the way we would put those 10 books together and we would, you know, see the the similarities and we would relate one thing to the other Mm -hmm. would be very unique to you and I. And so in a way, that's kind of all any book or movie or song is, is like our unique filter of our emotions and experiences through um, other art that we've spent a whole lifetime synthesizing. Right, you know? so not only and, is it and... unique to you, but it also has to relate to others
1: as well on a massive scale. So it's this, it's a combination of both. That's amazing. Yeah,
0: it's wild, dude. And I love it, and like, I, I love... Having these conversations with you, dude. We should freaking talk more, bro. Yeah, let's I feel do like it. we freaking. I feel like we have good convos. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually just. I, I was foolish of me to start watching
1: uh, Phantom Thread before this because I didn't have enough time to finish it, and I don't like cutting movies like that. But um, oh, yeah. there's so much more that I'm picking up on now than I did in the past because I saw I've seen it one time in theaters, and I was just like, it's okay. Um, and then yeah. yeah, the more that I can digest films after not. I think the first time I watch it, I focus on just exactly what's happening, and then once that's yeah. done and I can watch it again, then I get into the details and what symbolizes what, what means this, yeah. you know, and I don't need to get all focused on something I haven't seen before. You've seen Phantom Thread, right?
0: I actually have not, Oh okay. enough. You've seen and Dunkirk, the... yeah? I've seen what? Dunkirk. I actually. Oh shoot! My thing's starting to fall asleep. I actually have not seen Dunkirk. Oh,
1: either. these were two movies I was going to compare. All right, I'm not going to. I won't tell you about either of them. But I would okay, watch. Okay, you
0: know what? What? I'm going to watch in the next week or two. I'm going to watch Dunkirk and Phantom Thread. Okay. So I can freaking hear what you have to say about comparing them. Phantom right, Thread. Phantom Thread is on Netflix. If you have Netflix and wanted to watch that. I watched uh, the tragedy of Macbeth last night with Denzel. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. I think it's a little overrated.
1: Why do you think the tragedy of Macbeth is uh, overrated? Because it's a Coen Brothers movie, right? Well, it's
0: just Joel who did it. Ethan oh, okay, was not. I gotcha. I think, it's, I think Ethan wasn't involved. Oh, interesting. Or was it Ethan who did it? I think it was Joel. But um, have you seen it? No, I have not yet. Okay, well, okay. Well, I would say that I just... People are talking about it like it's like, amazing. And I do... I think visually, cinematically, it's the most creative and, like, well-done Shakespeare film that I've probably ever seen. Like, if you're going to make a movie about a Shakespeare drama, I don't think you could make a more artistic film than The Tragedy of Macbeth. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wasn't in love with all of the performances. The person who I think knocks it out of the park the most is Frances McDormand as Lady Macbeth. And I think Denzel does very good as Macbeth, but not, like, insane. Um, The Witch is wonderful... And, like, some of the other characters are wonderful. I was kind of disappointed by Macduff. But my kind of main problem with it, I think, is just with Shakespeare in general, especially as film, where it's like, if I I, I hadn't studied Macbeth in full beforehand, and so I didn't know, like, exactly what happens in each scene. I didn't understand, like, every couplet, every word, every reference, you know? And so kind of jumping in, having only seen, you know, a handful of scenes and monologues performed in, in, in class, may, there was maybe 40% of it that I just didn't know what the fuck they were saying. Mm. And, like, I, I think uh, for the most part, they did a pretty decent job of conveying with their acting and their body language, like, the the kind of the emotional essence of the scene. And I could follow the plot well enough and, like, what, like the main things that were happening. But there was just too much of the time where I was focused and not quite perceiving exactly what was happening where I couldn't get like the satisfaction out of it that I wanted. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, that does. You know? I remember being underwhelmed with
1: the one with Michael Fassbender as well. I haven't seen it, but I've heard it's not very good. I mean, I just was like, okay, it is what it is. What's What, why do it? Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, it's fine. Um, have, you, have you seen, because uh, you're a Coen Brothers fan,
0: right? Well, okay, I haven't seen many of their movies, but I do think they're brilliant filmmakers. I've seen Big Lebowski. I've seen No Country for Old Men, and I still I really need to see a bunch of the others. I need to see Burn After Reading. I need to see Inside Llewyn Davis. Uh, but why? which one were you going to bring up? I was
1: going to bring up The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is a series of kind of short stories. I think it's like
0: six little short stories in one movie. And okay, I haven't I th- seen that one, but I'm I a, think I'm you'd like that one. Yeah, I'll check it out. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, too. Wes Anderson is also doing a collection of short stories for his next project. Oh, really? He's doing like, yeah, he's like doing an adaptation of Roald Dahl stories for Netflix.
1: I have not heard of this and I have not seen his last one. Did you like his last one? Oh, yeah. It was
0: my uh, third favorite movie of 2021. Got I've seen so far. I saw that list yeah, yeah. and I was
1: really shocked. And so I was like, damn, I'm, I'm missing out. I got to get in the game of these movies.
0: Well, dude, I was just so obsessed with watching all the movies last year. I've kind of calmed down coming into the new year, so I can be a little more present with my uh, with my partner and her family. But uh, I did watch and analyze a lot of shit last year. I love French Dispatch, though. I think it's style. I think it's stylistically the most impressive, audacious thing Wes Anderson has ever done. Really, but it's still yeah, his like,
1: style. Because I feel like
0: his movies, you can still tell it's his style. Is this kind of more out there? Oh yeah, it's. It's very him. French Dispatch is like Wes Anderson on steroids, dude. Uh, <laughs> I, I thought it was beautiful.
1: Can I? I'm going to watch that. Like, Should I? I don't want to torrent things,
0: but I want to watch it. It's such it. a fun world. But you could. I could. Uh, but hey, Eric, before we, before we wrapped up our, our, our episode for the day, something I did want to touch base with you on is, and I mean, it might be a deeper conversation. We might have to like continue it next time, or maybe not. But I was just curious, like, you know, what initially made us want to talk is, you know, I posted something about Jung, Carl Jung, and about how he kind of spoke to people who were kind of halfway between logic and faith and like, you know, not necessarily like, oh, it's all science and it's all empirical and physical, or but also it's not all like kind of blind faith, et cetera. And I actually, okay, I'm, this is kind of tangential, but I listened to a really interesting podcast last night talking about this idea that God created both faith and logic and there were kind of theologians in the past who thought of them both as like dual wings with which one could use to fly upwards toward truth and I was like wow I really like that but what I'm curious about is you told me you were also raised religious like I was and you kind of uh, have become less religious as time has gone on like I have but there are still many kind of experiential truths and I guess things that kind of speak to you about um, that that might be considered religious or spiritual. And uh, I was just curious to hear a little about a little bit about your journey, like yes. where you've kind of come from, where you are now, how you think of the idea of God and religion and spirituality in your life at present. And, uh, yeah, I'm sorry if that's too vague. No, no, no. Uh, I just,
1: the, the thing is, when you as you're talking, there's so many things that I find fascinating and I want to respond to. But I also don't want to lose track or, like, go off on a whole bunch of different tangents. Um, oh, man. Well, we got to hit all of them eventually. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. You brought up Jordan Peterson earlier, and that made me kind of want to talk about my own weird reaction to jordan peterson because i know that he gets a lot of like controversial dislike from people and so there's a part of me that's kind of like uh but i've also listened to a lot of jordan peterson and found a lot of things that he said just really fascinating and cool and wanting to have more conversations about those topics um oh yeah i'd love to i'd be thrilled and so the concepts of faith and logic yeah i never understood why if you believed in science you couldn't simultaneously be religious and to say why can't both exist with each other unless one is trying to disprove the other and you know whatever but um yeah i was raised catholic and my grandmother was really religious but it was odd because the people in my life were not ideal people to look up to and so it reminds Mm -hmm. me of the arcade fire lyric where he says working for the church while your family dies and that can take Mm -hmm. you away from the structured Religion, if your examples of it aren't good, but at the same time, there's been a lot of comfort that it's given me when I needed it, and so yeah, it's it's funny because it's like yeah, you should just take like if something's good for you and it pushes you in the right direction, regardless of what it is. I feel like that should be fine to use, right? I mean, if it's not yeah. detrimental to you, if it's not detrimental to other people. Um, And I remember actually at Foothill was one of the experiences I had when we were talking about something like religion in Tom's class. And everyone wanted, everyone who raised their hand to like make a comment had to preface like, I'm not religious or anything. But, and then they would say their, their view. And it gave that weird feeling that I think we all feel where it's kind of hokey or corny to be religious. Um, and I think we do see a lot of legitimate reasons why it's stupid or why people use it in an inappropriate way. Um, and there's been a few examples of people who've used it in a really admirable way that I've seen that really, um, stick to the values and I'm not one of them, but (laughs) 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 I (laughs) I think, I think I'm religious, but I don't know how I would identify it. I think it's just. Yeah. I think to quote Jordan Peterson, where he says, "Like I don't know if I believe in God, but I act as if God exists," and I think that yeah, kind that's of one helps. Yeah, my favorite quotes. Yeah, that kind of helps me, um,
0: because and and I'm sure you've seen True Detective as well, where dude, I still need to. Huh? No, you haven't. I st- I haven't seen it season one, right? Oh, been kind of
1: gay. So Matthew McConaughey says something along the lines, which is a, a popular argument where it's like if you're the type of person that you have to believe in like divine reward or like damnation to not do bad things, you're a piece of shit essentially, right? And it's like Yeah, yeah. I've I don't know, it's just there's it's so weird what motivates each different person to go out of their way to do something good. Um, and yeah, Yeah. if it's religious, if it's how you were raised, if it's to impress somebody else, like at least you're contributing something good, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah, there's, there's some religious thing that I would love to figure out the words for that I have. And there is a comfort that I have, um, with Catholicism, with Christianity, but there's also a, um, like a demon in it. There's something by the insidious way people use it that still make it feel sullied. Yeah. We had at LMU after the, there were like priests that were covered up for molesting children or something. There were a lot of Catholic cause LMU is a Catholic, Fuck. a Jesuit school. Um, yeah. And we had a lot of people who were Catholic that stepped away from the church after that. Cause they were like, how can you yeah. be so hypocritical to do something evil and then praise yourself as good. Um, no, there's just so much tied into that that I don't know how to hone it in into one thing. I would yeah. say one time, because I just like in literature and great film, I love to find the symbolism and metaphors in actual life where I would want to see the signs. And you can say, oh, wanting to see the signs, you see the signs, right? Like it's like astrology. If you want to believe that, you'll see it. And there's ways that it's still useful to you. Like for example, with astrology, if someone's like, hey, spend more money or spend more attention on your money today, you might think, well, that applies to everybody. But at the same time, if your actions from seeing that makes you more aware of your money and that gives you a positive you know, um, outcome, then that was useful, right? There was one time I was, I was deeply upset and I was walking down a street. I was going to like run away from home like like a fool. And I was like, I'm just going to hop on a train and go to LA. And I was like a kid. And I was like, I don't think any trains even go to LA, (laughs) but I was (laughs) walking, I was walking down the sidewalk and I was like crying and I was feeling like really alone. and, And like, I didn't belong here. And I found these oranges on the side of the street. And I saw the symbolism in my head as, um, God will always provide for you, you know, in your worst times. And that gave me a kind of loved comfort and security that, um, that I, I just remembered that moment. And in the recent, so I broke up with, um, with my girlfriend of seven years last year in February. So we're coming up on a year anniversary now. Okay, well, I'm sorry to hear that. Huh? Well, I'm sorry to hear that. No worries. That is life and uh, I feel like um, What I wanted to stop doing was I wanted to stop seeing signs and things and I wanted to take more control over my life and make decisions for me and so I tried to step away from well this means that and this means that so that I had more control So I'm still balancing where I want to see signs and things and where I don't want to see signs so that I make decisions
0: for myself, you know? Yeah. So that's a whole little rant
1: that was a little scramble
0: of feelings and thoughts. I love it. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. Like, I, I deeply relate to a lot of what you said, you know? Like, and I do think about things like, The idea of, oh, if you need this to be a good person, then you're a shitty person and things like that. Whereas now I think it's like, you know what? I think there is so much existential dread that comes into everybody's hearts and minds where any excuse you can find to actually do good and help people is good. Like, I don't think it matters how you get there. I think like just as long as we're putting positivity out there. You know? Yeah.
1: There's a guy, uh, and he was, uh, no. So he, he was like, so I've had conversations like religious conversations with people. Um, cause I, again, like philosophy, it's just fascinating to me. And I was trying to express to him, he's like a Sunni Muslim and I was trying to express this weird sense of guilt that I have with giving to homeless people because I couldn't understand if I was doing it for me, if I was doing it for, you know, if someone was watching that you look good, if you're buying your way into heaven, if like all these things, I was just kind of tearing my mind apart with not fully really knowing my intentions. And he said something like, if you buy a pizza for a homeless person, the actual concrete thing that was done is that that guy is now, like, he has food. Like, so it doesn't matter what your intentions are, if they're good or bad, the outcome is good. And I don't know if I completely agree with that, but I thought that was a cool way of looking at it so that you just don't rip yourself apart. You're like, hey, something is good. And I do like the idea that, Yeah, the actual outcome is this person got something they needed and they know that people care about them because it's it's a really creepy thing to me when, especially here in LA, and you see it all the time, how people pretend they don't see the homeless person. And I wonder what that does to the homeless person's psyche and the person who's passing them. What does it do to their mind to really just ignore that person? Um, and I feel like even if you gave like 50 cents or a dollar, what that does, it's not just the like dollar, but it's, Hey, I care about you, you know? So,
0: yeah, well, dude, I mean, that reminds me of something I heard in the podcast last night too, which it was Jordan Peterson talking with two theologians from this place like word on fire. And then one of them told the story that, uh, I guess there was a guy giving a lecture on all the logical arguments for the existence of God. And there was an atheist in the audience. And at the end of the uh, lecture, he goes up to him like that was a waste of time. It's all like the premise is all BS because like there is no God. And so what the speaker said is like, here, like this is what I want you to try. Just go about your daily life and treat everybody that you encounter like they are Jesus in disguise. And so he did it like just for the hell of it. Seven days. Like he did it to his family, right? Like he was like, oh, like, let me go help my mom do the dishes. Let me help my dad with this or my brothers like this. And just this idea of, you know, doing this kindness as if it were Jesus. And he said it completely transformed his life and the way he treated people. And I guess on one level, you can think, oh, that's kind of shitty. You only want to do these nice things if it's Jesus. If you're thinking about it literally, which I think is kind of like a silly way. (laughs) But the way I kind of view it is thinking of, like, there is this portion of the divine in all of us, and I think everybody is worth that, right? It's yeah. like that Bible yeah. verse, like he, like Jesus saying, he who helps the least of you helps me, or whatever, right? Or, like, the the poorest beggar or whatever the heck he said. And, like, I do think when we, we, we treat everybody and acknowledge this kind of, like, heroic, benevolent uh, possibility that's inside everybody's heart and give it to them, like, the world is just better, and like, and I think we can escape from it being selfish or self-serving, where it's like, yeah, like it makes us feel good, but also like it's just you're just doing good, spreading good, and I feel like that's um, like I think what you, what you described as your main problem, growing up is like hearing the words that are faithful and religious, but not seeing actions that coincide with that, whereas this is a way to actually like like quote unquote like manifest God's love in a tangible way, right? Where it's like, if there is a God, if there is good, well, I I do believe there's goodness because obviously like there's evil, like things like fucking, uh, like Jordan Peterson always talks about the gulags and, you know, the World War II. And clearly like there's evil in men's hearts that's always capable of being accessed to do harm to other people. And so if that exists, there must also be good, you know, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, that, that's something that's really bolstered me because I, I really had like a similar experience to you, Eric, where like I was raised really religious and it wasn't necessarily the actions that drove me away. It was just like how the church I was particularly involved in, like believed everything very literally. Mm. And I was like, well, this is very obviously not literally true. And so yeah. why have you been lying to me my whole life? And I broke away from it. I was very angry. I was like, I don't even know if God exists. But even in that state, like like you, I wanted that comfort. I wanted to feel like something was loving me and taking care of me and was guiding me and, and that there was meaning, you know. And so I was like lost, kind of trying to figure things out and pick parts of like wisdom and spirituality and philosophy and try to see like, you know, what works and like now i'm kind of in a weird place where like if i had to write a document about my beliefs it might be contradictory in places it might seem kind of like all over the place but i generally do believe that like god or a higher power or like the universe whatever is like guiding all of us along a kind of course and the more we kind of fight that and and want things that aren't our portion or want a different life or want fame and success or blah, 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 the more unhappy we are versus if we kind of flow with it and then exercise our own will, you know, and, and kind of onus, like just gently, you know what I mean? Like, oh, well, maybe I'll go a little bit here, a little bit there or, or do it in positive ways to like, like, for example, like my life right now is with my partner and her family And it's like, well, what is in my control is like, I can do things to help them out during the day. I can do like extra chores. I can do things like that. And like, that's my way of using my will to kind of like improve my life and add some positivity versus like being so strong-willed, like I'm gonna get out there and I'm gonna audition and I'm gonna make a movie and you know what I mean? Where it's just like, that doesn't feel like in my heart what I'm meant to be doing right now. And I also have this, like I, you know, all these, I'm, I'm sure you've been exposed to some conversa- conversations about free will. Like, do we have free will? And the logical arguments that very clearly show we don't have free will. And it's like, but you can say, oh, but I thought to do this. I I decided to do this. But it's like, where did that thought come from? And why did you decide one thing over the other? It was like, you just felt it in your heart. Or you just, your brain just came to that conclusion. You know? And so it's like, how do I... Put as much positivity into my mind and try to have faith that like the good thoughts and the productive thoughts are the ones that I'm going to choose to act on and like what I'm going to like I I, I believe that like God manifests or like the higher power whatever manifests itself through like what's in my heart and if I listen to like the good thing the positive thing then I'm going to always make the decision that's leading me in like a positive life direction you know and I mean, I feel like I'm kind of going all over the place too. But I do feel like there's like a lot of parallels with what you said about how you feel and like, and also how I feel at the moment. But like, I, I don't know. I guess it's it's taken me a while, like a several years to get to where I currently am. But I do feel more positive and connected to spirituality and, and some kind of higher power than I ever did before. And I do see the usefulness of behaving As a Christian, even if I don't literally believe Christ is the son of God and did all these things and died for our sins, etc., etc., and go to church. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean?
1: Well, like, what's the utility of it, too, right? So... It's just kind of like people can be so selfish and self-centered. Like It's humbling to think, oh, we're not actually the most important beings in the universe. Oh, it's actually our responsibility to care for the earth and everything living on it rather than just use it up for our interests. And I think because it's part of human nature to be selfish, it's also part of human nature to balance that out So because we know we have to actually maintain the order and everything. And so if you think like giving to this person doesn't benefit me, right? Then where does that come from? It must be something else, right? That gives you this sense of to do good, you know? And yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just think I, it helps drive me to think about what my responsibility is. Um, yeah. Yeah. And trying to do something good because if I was completely self-centered, I don't think I would contribute uh in a positive way to the rest of the world if I was just like doing something just for me. And I think and, and yeah. the concept of free will, because you could just say, well, that's you don't have free will because you've always been that way, or you're naturally all the choices that were going to be made for you shape you to be that person. But I mean, I don't know. I don't think you can prove or disprove free will. Um I think people in general don't question themselves and try to be self-aware and have those conversations enough. But I think we're having those things more and more because i have noticed with older generations, when you talk to them about why do you think that way? Where do you think that thought came from? You know, that kind of thinking, they don't really, in my experience, like my family and, and older people don't really talk or think that way. Um, and it could be, yeah. Yeah. It could be out of necessity. Like, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Once you get food and water, then you go up to friendship. Then you go up to this. Then you go up to what does it mean to be a person? And it could be out of privilege that uh, we've focused on what does it mean to be a person more than focusing on how do I get food,
0: you know? So, yeah, I mean, I think there's truth in that. And like, I also remember reading about Maslow and like he never intended to make it seem like you had to achieve one necessarily before the other. But I do think there is a privilege in being able to have these thoughts and discussions. And I also do think, you know, maybe God put this in people like us where, like, we are just fascinated by these ideas, whereas other people couldn't be fucked, you know? And they just want to to focus on kind of more immediate things or other things. And I don't blame them, you know? Like, if these kinds of conversations and ideas are not interesting to you, then, hey, no pressure to, like, think about it, you know? But... Yeah, but what you said know. earlier about the it's film wild, critic,
1: if you love, if you love a film and someone else hates it, you get that arrogant, like, well, you're just stupid and you just don't have good taste and all of that too. It's yeah. kind of like, it's the same thing with people who are self-aware or or who want to have that kind of, True. um, expedition into consciousness. If they don't want yeah. that, if they're yeah. not interested in that, there is a part of me that gets arrogant about it. And I need to, that's something I have to check and I don't know how to, Hey, huh?
0: No, I'm saying I'm right there with you. I like that's something that, you know, I I think we just have to constantly check it. And Mm -hmm. I think it's just by reminding ourselves. And this is another Jordan Peterson thing, like just reminding ourselves that there's a lot of other ways to be like a worthwhile, worthy human. Yeah. I mean, mean. like there's a lot of worthwhile. Like he also talks about like carpentry or like tradesmen where it's like maybe they don't want to talk about intellectual or philological things, but there's an honesty in carpentry because the house either stands or it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And that's very admirable for somebody to, you know, be useful in that way Mm -hmm. and just be doing things for other people. And yeah, man, so much to think about. Well, you know what, Eric? I I just want to say, it's just, it's
1: fascinating that people have their code of everybody. Everybody has their code of what's right and what's wrong. And it's just cool to see that in people, right? Like if you can Mm -hmm. train your brain to see the positives in people, everything looks so much better rather than seeing the negatives in people. And I'm, actively trying to push myself in the other direction because it's too easy for me to see negativity first and more often that I have to willfully try to see positivity more often
0: yeah I honestly think that's just human nature you know yeah and I know evolutionists think it's because we had to worry about surviving so that's why we're focused on problems blah 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 blah, and maybe that's a part of it but I mean, and there's also like a, the Solzhenitsyn quote, Jordan Peterson says a lot like the the line between good and evil runs through the heart of every man. And I think that like it's a mistake and it's oversimplification to see others as evil and yourself as good, which was one of my problems with the church I was raised in, where it's like. No, it's like we're all capable of great evil and great good. And I think we have to be conscious of trying to support and engender the goodness in us and in our communities and in our world as much as possible, you know, and to like have that kind of humility to be able to like own up to that, you know, to to realize how terrible and how negative we're capable of being. And like the fact that these negative ideas and pessimism and nihilism, there are they are so powerful and there are like very, you know, logical arguments you can make in support of those things. But it's just like, does the premise stand up? And it's like, well, we have to work, you know, twice as hard to like combat that with good, you know. And yeah, and Eric, you know, I think this is as good a place as any to, to stop for the day. But I have greatly enjoyed our conversation ranging from all things Hollywood foothill to uh godly
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I've enjoyed it too dude thanks for inviting me and uh wanting to talk I appreciate it
0: hey my pleasure dude and we'll definitely we'll talk more in the future you know we'll talk we'll talk more than we used to before I didn't realize we were both 29 bro yeah we're freaking bonded by the fire of our birth year
1: (laughs) (laughs) almost 30 let's see what happens now
0: I know, we're on the cusp. Well, hey, Eric, again, thanks for your time, bro. Um, I'll I'll send you my email address right after this. But uh, yeah, thanks, Eric. Thanks to anyone who's listened to this. Hope you found it uh, interesting and enriching to hear two dudes on the cusp of 30 talk about all the shit we talked about. (laughs) All right. All
1: right, buddy, I'm gonna let you go now. Thank you.
0: Yeah, have a good evening, brother. Bye-bye.